Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 89. Reminding us, not only in the ancient day, but in our day, the word of the Lord shall stand and not, in fact, be that which is changeable. Jesus stated in Matthew 24, 35, that though heaven and earth shall pass away, my word shall not pass away. Is it any wonder then that we can each stand beneath the banner of the appreciation of the Word of God and understand that it is just as timeless and just as meaningful and just as needful for our day as in any day past? It is the case tonight that we continue and conclude our series of lessons on the Revelation as our youngsters participate in that next uh, Saturday morning and continuing through a fair amount of that day. We tonight will draw to our conclusion the study or at least our reminder of some of the issues concerning the, the last book in the Bible. Tonight we come to the 21st and 22nd chapters of that book. And so it is to that I would invite you to turn with me as we extract a few powerful lessons. Certainly it's fair to say that in the limited time we have, we will not be able to look at the fullness. One could preach an entire series of lessons just on these two chapters. But it is the case we can extract some beautiful and powerful truths from them. And that's almost true of any single verse in the entirety of the Word of God. I've entitled this lesson, The Holy City. And as you may have noted, Lucas, in the reading of verses, verse 2 of Revelation 21 a moment ago, that was one of the phrases that appeared in that very verse. With that said, and also pointing toward that, we did note, as we concluded the study last time, as we drew to a close, chapter number 20, we saw a rather amazing picture. Quite frankly, it was a bit frightful because we saw that judgment scene that there the books were opened in verses 12 and 13 of Revelation 20. And we noticed there was a judgment out of the things written in those books. And furthermore, what a sad and fateful end for all whose name was not written in the Lamb's book of life. Verses 14 and 15 of Revelation 20 reminded us that they found themselves cast into that lake burning with fire and brimstone as had been the case, of course, for the dragon somewhat earlier in that very same chapter. With that said, we come to a rather different scene in chapters 21 and 22. The darkness and all the terribleness that has gone with it have now e evaporated because the judgment of God has taken place, if you please, and before us in these chapters... The scene is obviously very, very different. The holy city is going to be the matter under discussion. And as you notice near the bottom of that slide, we have a picture of this holy city, the New Jerusalem. It's a picture in many ways of the church. But the glimpse we're given is of the church in heaven. The church that in fact not only enjoys a blissfulness here, a church that enjoys the powerful fellowship with God here, but a church that can look forward to the marvelous fellowship of eternity. No wonder many of the graphic scenes in these chapters will tempt us so beautifully to just imagine what things are going to be like in that golden place and in that grand place that awaits all of those who are the faithful. It is with that in mind we start chapter 21 by noticing yet one more time this holy city. Let me invite you to read the first eight verses with me of Revelation 21. It begins reading in the following fashion. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. 
and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, neither crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these things are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. To pause at that point and at least make a few immediate reflections and observations on those verses. You'll notice as it begins, John sees a new heaven and a new earth because the former one had passed away. What had been the case concerning the material matters were no longer there. In 2 Peter 3 verses 9 and 10, join in the chorus of that description. On that occasion do we not read, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, the earth and the elements therein shall melt with fervent heat. That reminds us that this earth isn't permanent. Even though it appears often to be so, it really isn't. The day will come when it shall in fact be destroyed in the most remarkable conflagration of all time, a great burning of fire, a great destruction even down to the elemental considerations of it. And so it is that John sees a new heaven and a new earth, not a remade earth, we might add. It does not say that. And despite the fact that there are many who seem to feel that there will be a utopian state, a paradise, if you please, on earth at some point, that is far from what this passage teaches. Again, this reminds us that we're looking for a new dwelling place, one in which, of course, is described in some of the passages that we're reading in the verses tonight. Much of the language of that new heaven and earth is drawn identically from the last two chapters of Isaiah, chapters 65 and 66, wherein that new heaven and new earth is referenced in another place and also in another way. With those thoughts in mind prompting us, verse number 2 reminds us that coming out of heaven, John saw this new city, this holy city. It's a description, as we'll see later in the chapter, of the greatness and grandeur affiliated with the church. You and I ought never to think that the church is of insignificant character, that it is of trivial means. For that church and all the glorious wonder that these had re- opportunity to look forward to, they were persecuted saints. We might notice by this point Babylon has already been judged and she is no more. But these saints are alive and they're well and they're able to appreciate the blessedness and goodness that God is able to provide to them. Notice how the old destroyed Babylon contrasts with the continuance of the new city, the heavenly city. You see, these saints, not as if they were previously destroyed, they are now able to enjoy the powerful and marvelous grandeur of this new city, the place wherein they are allowed to dwell. In the last line of that, you might notice in Revelation 19, we are given a foreboding of this idea. And it only takes us really to what occurs next. Here's a picture 
one picture of this golden city as John apparently may have seen it coming then down out of heaven. You'll notice that shortly we'll describe some of the attributes of it as it relates to its size. But at least for the time being, note with me verses 3 and 4. You'll notice in them John heard a great voice describing the fellowship that was able to be enjoyed because God said, I will be their God and they will tabernacle with me. Isn't it still the case? That's one of the greatest of blessings, to tabernacle with the greatness of God. In the Old Testament, we've been studying on Sunday morning about the Exodus and seeing that that tabernacle is where God had given commandment relative to the mercy seat and His tabernacling with them. Now we're about to notice in this final place, these saints are with God Himself. And as such, doesn't that paint a picture of the ultimate completeness of fellowship? No longer will there be a need for an intermediate state such as a tabernacle or a temple. There is no temple here. The place you see is the ultimate grandeur of God Himself. You'll notice that in verse number 4, there were some amazing things not to be found here. I'm sure none of us will miss these things. Things like death and pain and crying and things that associate to the character of what so often corresponds to sorrow. John says none of these things will be found there. We each recognize that though the state of the church on this earth often brings us bliss and brings us happiness, we might understand we still are all looking forward to a place that Paul described more than once as a place in 2 Corinthians 5 beginning in verse 1, a place that there was nothing that would be lacking. We will be in the absolute presence of the Lord Himself. Isn't it to be noted then that this is something again to which each Christian can look forward to? As we've often noted in song and in prayer, heaven is the goal. It is the finality of our destination. And if we miss it, we have missed everything. No matter what else may have been descriptive of our state upon earth, if we miss the golden strand of glory in heaven, then we have really missed everything. As you can well imagine in verse number 4, this is a tremendously different state to what took place in Babylon and what took place in those chapters preceding. Again, this is the place to which we each would desire. But even beyond that, in verses 5 and 6, I make all things new is what the words John heard. We each enjoy, I think, from time to time that state of newness. All that had come to be old and tarnished, all that had come to be worn and dilapidated, and perhaps even deteriorated, has given way to that which is new. John saw the things that were new. Can't we look forward to a place such as this? And isn't it great that God chooses this to close the Bible? Even beyond that in verse number 6, we notice powerfully, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. We've seen that phrase now more than once already in this book, reminding us that from Alpha to Omega, from A to Z, we see the fullness of all that is the Christ. Without Him, your life and mine is a bit empty. It's a bit hollow. It's rather vain to say the least. But yet with Him in place, He provides meaning to your life and mine. Did He not say in John 15, 3, that without me ye can do nothing? And did He not offer a tremendous invitation in Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The amazing features about those passages are challenging us yet again to notice here that the description continues onward. In verses 7 and 8, also of Revelation 21, we come again to the key word in the entirety of the Revelation. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. We've often labored to embed in our mind the reality that that is the key word to the entire book. And as long as we can keep it in mind, we likely will not have veered far from the overall thrusting character of any of the particular sections of it. To those seven churches in Asia back in chapters 2 and 3, so often that word appeared reminding and exhorting them to overcome. And now as the book nears its close, a similar warning is given again. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. Romans chapter 8 speaks about us being the joint heirs with Christ and heirs of God, verses 14 to 16 of that chapter. Isn't it grand to think about being an heir of God? And yet as saints, as faithful children of His, that's precisely the grand reward to which we can look forward. In, chapter, in verse number 8, we notice yet another listing. And isn't the Bible famous for its listings? It says the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and what's more, even liars, shall have their part in the lake burning with fire and brimstone. These, you see, have no part in that golden celestial city. Those who are guilty of unbelief, those guilty of sexual immorality, those who are liars. Can we not again see another reminder about the imperative of godly living? The needfulness and always so of living soberly, righteously, and godly in the words of Titus 2 verse 12. As the curtain closes here near the close of the Bible, one more time God reminds us, doesn't He? Even in that verse about various kinds of behavior. Doesn't that remind us how sad it is when individuals say, You just talk about Jesus, don't tamper with my life. Don't tell me how to live. But my friend, God says, I'm going to judge you based on what I've said in my word is righteous and holy and also what is ungodly and unacceptable. And if you've been guilty of those things and have never received forgiveness, this is what your fate and end shall be. God does, you see, if you please choose to call it tampering. He says, don't behave like that. Don't speak like that. Don't believe like that. And here in Revelation 21.8, we notice certain ones will have no part in that golden blessedness of heaven. As you can see, beginning in verse number 9, we're prepared for the next section in this chapter. I would invite you to give some thought with me to verses 9 through 14, the next mini-section, if you please, of this chapter. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither. And I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates. And at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. 
and on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. We notice again a description that might take us in this direction. One of those seven angels that we encountered a few chapters back, the one in chapter 16 that had these uh, plagues or the bowls, if you please, that were poured out, one of them in verse 9 came and spoke with John. Hadn't it often been interesting that this John, who often was in the audience watching these events unfold, yet again here had the opportunity to participate. One of these angels came and conversed with him. Verse 9, Come hither, he said, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. We mentioned earlier that the principal matter of discussion here revolved around the marvelous wonder of the church, the wife of the Lamb, the bride of the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, John's famous refrain of John one twenty nine, As he spoke about the Christ, the Son of God, we know more than once the church described as his bride. That, of course, is you and me. We look forward, do we not, to here appreciating that here as John describes the blessedness of the holy city, the blessedness of being a part of the church, his special emphasis will be that bride as she exists later in heaven. Might I invite each of us to notice in verse 11 how glorified she is. The church has often taken such an ugly name by the world. So many in the world look down upon the church, insult the church, look upon the church as something that's needless, unimportant, trivial, and insignificant. But may I ask us to note again, it had the glory of God. The church is so special and we should always honor it and to appreciate her and to lift her high in our thinking and in our description so that others can see Christ in us, Colossians 1.27 and hopefully be led to appreciate the gloriousness of what God would call them to be too. As you can see in verses 11 and 12, like unto a stone most precious. The church is indeed that precious, isn't it? Just as surely as the Old Testament prophets looked forward to her existence, the New Testament confirms her existence in passages like Colossians 1.13, and even here as the Bible comes to its close, reminding us of just how special the church is. Didn't Daniel say in Daniel 2.44 that once established, she would never be destroyed? And today, you and I are the blessed recipients of that very concept and idea. As you could perhaps note further, in the verses that follow with respect to this one, let us give some thought, specifically to verse 11. Even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, some of the most precious of the stones of the ancient world, and even to our day, are those that are such that despite precious, they nonetheless are clear. We even know today so many of those like diamonds have an element of clarity to them such that light is able to not only reflect off of them, but to do so by first penetrating into them. After all, ladies often enjoy diamonds. Their characteristics are brilliant. Their characteristics are ever so fine. And yet we notice here that this bride is also described in ways clear as crystal. Verse 12, there was a wall great and high, thus it was protected. 
those cities of the Old Testament like Jericho and others were such that they also had those cities? Did Nehemiah return and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in the book of Nehemiah? We can even appreciate here that this protection was such that there, were, there was entrance for those prepared to enter. Though it was protected from those who did not need to enter by these great and high walls, there were twelve gates whereby entrance for all those who had reason and had the ability and the blessedness to enter. That reminds all of us to this day, heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. All who have lived faithfully will be granted entrance therein. Come ye into the joys of my Lord. The words spoken twice in Matthew chapter 25. It thus should be the case that we can understand. There was one gate so often to those cities of the ancient world. Here many gates so that all those who have been the faithful... Remember, there's 144,000 listed in this book as a figurative expression. What's more in chapter 7, verses 12 and following? That innumerable number, there is plenty of acceptable entrance for those who are the faithful and righteous of God. As you can well tell beyond that, we come to notice that there's ample foundation for this city. You and I have all seen pictures of what happens to cities plagued with earthquakes on this earth. Japan a few years ago, even recently earlier this year when Japan again had to undergo so many difficulties due to that earthquake and what followed. May we each conclude this city of which we now read is amply founded because the foundation of the church is none other than the Son of God Himself. Is it not said that He is the one and only foundation? 1 Corinthians 3.11 And just as surely as He purchased the church, Acts 20.28, it is founded upon a rock which can never be slidden aside or removed asunder. That reminds us here that all those who have been the faithful followers of the Lamb will be allowed entrance and blessed with that entrance into this place. As you can see beyond it, we're prepared for verses 15 to 27, the last section in this chapter. Here's yet another picture of this cubical celestial city coming down out of heaven. And this one's a bit different in that you can see the various foundations upon which it rests. And you can also see the three gates on each side. Yet another picture. This one also of those foundations. You'll notice the various layers, and if you can count them, there are 12 of them. And as you see those layers, how special and pristine they appear. In fact, you may notice in that which we're about to read, various stones are here described as parts in that foundation. Beginning in verse 15, And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof in hundred and forty and four cubits according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper. And the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. 
And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten in the Lamb as the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. The specialness associated with verses 15 to 27 of Revelation 21 bring us not only to a picture like that one, but also to some additional comments. Here again, the angel continues to converse with John. As you can see, he makes description again of the beauty associated with this foundation. These various stones that adorn and garnish the outside of these foundation walls is truly an amazing thing to consider. Some of them we can well identify because they match so well. That study in Exodus we noted earlier in chapters 27 and 28 of that book. But for here you'll notice that some of these comments seem to fall in order. There were names upon this reminding us of the faithful in the Old Testament era as well as the faithful in the New. The twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve names of the apostles all telling us that all of the old era as well as the new who have been faithful will find their place in this golden and grand city forevermore. As you can give thought furthermore, he did use especially that word saved, didn't he, in verse 24. The saved are here. Isn't that a lovely thought to be cataloged among that number? It is sad to notice sometimes that the Bible just makes note of two categories. There are those who are saved, and there are those who are not. Isn't it an awful thought to be a member of that latter number, those who are not saved? No wonder the single greatest question that can emanate from the lips of humanity was uttered in Acts 16, verse 30, What must I do to be saved? You notice that those who have asked that question have heard its answer and have obeyed it find themselves in this place of which we read tonight. So many in the world say that they do wish to go to heaven, and yet we read it does require obedience, doesn't it? To follow in the course of what is told to us in the Holy Scriptures. A reed was provided to the angel in which measurement was made. you notice that a large space was therein noted. It was four square. Furthermore, it was cubical, reminding us of the Holy of Holies. In the tabernacle of the Old Testament, it too was a perfect cube. Its length, its breadth, its, its height as it came to be represented in the temple of David or Solomon, it was a perfect cube. Here we see the Holy of Holies yet perfectly cubical. That's where the dwelling of God was. That's where His dwelling forevermore shall be. Is not God's throne, Psalm 11 verses 3 and 4, highlighted in places like this? You'll notice the vastness of its size reminds us that there's plenty of room for everybody who is going to be saved. Sometimes you and I find that quarters can be cramped here on earth. 
Sometimes you go to a hotel, they've lost your reservation and they have to scamper to find you a place. Or you're present at a stadium to watch an event and you're scrunched up near your neighbors. In heaven there will be ample space, adequate space for all who are there. In John 14, beginning in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, many rooms, if you please, in the mansion. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there, you may be also. You'll notice that we shouldn't thus think that heaven is literally the size given here. This book is filled with symbolic power and representation. To say that it's some 12,000 furlongs on a side, understand that that number reminds us that 12,000 is, of course, 12 times 1,000. But you'll notice that the fullness of that reminds us of all the symbolic greatness to be seen in the 10 times 10 times 10 number. This number, again, fully the size of all that it will need to be. It might be noted as we draw that to a conclusion. This is a very different description than the measurement the angel made back in chapter 11. Is there not some significance in the fullness and the greatness of this number? Perhaps as you give thought to it, it does bring us to the walls and foundations and some very brief comments toward that end might be in order. I've listed those various stones. Sometimes it's difficult for us today due to the Hebrew language and our failure to understand it fully, what that signified, as well as the Greek one here, that sometimes we have to make the best conclusion we can about them. Needless to say, those stones have an array of colors, a beautiful appearance to say the very least, and many of them, thankfully, we can easily identify. Perhaps in fairness to that, let us close this chapter by noting some final thoughts and scenes. Isn't it interesting that as you give thought with all those things to me, verse 21 and 22, no temple in this place. The temple, of course, is God Himself and the Lamb. And we know there's, notice there's no night there either. Sometimes night brings fear and it brings a sense of evil. Often darkness is associated with it, but yet there is no night in this place. One has not to fear about things stolen, things in which evil or sin takes place, for there is none of that there. There is nothing that defiles, verse 27. The only ones present are those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. And make no mistake, God will in fact not allow entrance to those who are not the prepared. No one will be able to weasel their way in argue their way in, despite the fact they never lived appropriately, they will not convince him to let them in. His judgment will be just. Perhaps it's fair also to notice one of the final comments, that the salvation herein described is certainly one to which all can look forward. And it's highlighted perhaps in language that takes us right into the next chapter. Verses 1 to 5 of Revelation 22 read, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves were for the healing of the nation. 
And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. And they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there. And they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. John next saw this remarkable pure river of water of life in verse 1. Doesn't that help to remind us that it came out of the throne of God and of the Lamb? And you'll notice that that is a remarkable consideration. Because after all, isn't it in verse 2, the tree of life is herein mentioned. That takes us back to the very first story, the very first record almost in the entirety of the Bible. Adam and Eve had access to the tree of life, Genesis 2 verse 9. In that garden, there were two principal trees. There was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, of which they were never to partake. But there was also the tree of life, to which they did have access. However, after they sinned, they were in fact removed from that place, and the way of the tree of life was guarded, Genesis 3, 21 and 2. You'll notice here that what they lost, humanity again has the opportunity to again enjoy. What we lost in Adam, we gained through Christ. We notice that when they messed up and thus allowed sin to enter by virtue of their disobedience, here again humanity can have access to it, but it's not everyone purely by accident. It's those who've entered into this place. For here we find the tree of life. And do you notice that it bears fruit every month? Never will be a time when there will be a curse or death. Never does one have to worry about being kicked out of heaven because one passes away from it. This place, you see, is everlasting. No night there, no need for the sun or even a candle. Isn't it amazing that we come then to appreciate that it is the throne of God and of the Lamb? Suffice it to say, verses 6 and following, take us to an explanation of, or at least consideration of, some of the features. And here's another picture. You'll notice this river passing through the midst of it, the tree of life pictured on either side, bearing continuous fruit, if you will. And you'll notice the blessedness of the golden character with the throne in the distance. It is a rather mesmerizing thing to consider, isn't it? You'll notice with me that also in those verses, something very special is on the forehead of these. Did you notice it with me specifically? In verse number 4, His name shall be in their foreheads. That stands in distinction, doesn't it, to the mark of the beast. We saw in chapter 13, the mark of the beast was on their forehead or on their hand, but for these who have entered this place, it is not the mark of the beast that marks them. It's the name of the God of heaven on their forehead. Do you and I follow the Lord, following the Lamb? Do we have His mark in a symbolic way upon us? For if we don't, we shouldn't expect to make it to this place. It might be fair to take us a step further. And notice in verses 6 through 21, the closing set of verses to the chapter and the closing set of verses to the book. And He said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the Holy prophet sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I, heard and, when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not. 
For I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings, the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust, still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy, still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous, still. And he that is holy, let him be holy, still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bride and morning star. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that, it, that heareth say, Come. And let him that is athirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues which are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. As the curtain closes on Revelation 22, we perhaps come with some final notes, observations, and thoughts. We might well begin in verse 6 with the statement, These sayings are faithful and true. The Word of God is in fact utterly and completely true, isn't it? And this is a true set of statements. Though men may have often questioned it, some have even doubted it, others assert that it's just a figment of John's hallucinatory imagination, such wasn't the case. John, by the God of heaven, through the character of the Christ, by the means of the angel, was shown these things that indeed are faithful and true. Beyond that, we might well notice that it is the Lord more than once who here said, I come quickly. He did come in judgment upon Rome, the scarlet beast, the harlot that we had seen back in chapter 17 and 18 did meet her despicable end. We notice that all of those who have not their name in the book of life too will meet a very unpleasant end, in fact, to the character of where they shall end up. It is entirely interesting to notice. Verse number 7, Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Blessed are they that obey. God demands obedience, and men are not at liberty to sidestep that, evade it or avoid it. You'll notice that John confessed indeed what he heard and also what he saw. It seems to me entirely interesting to notice that verse 11 itself reminds us that the character of God is not that He will force any to obey. Every citizen of the army of God is on a volunteer basis. God will not constrict and force anyone into the kingdom. Those who wish to be ungodly and unholy, God will allow them to make that choice. He will, however, judge them for the choices that they have made. 
those who are righteous, they too shall in fact hear and appreciate the glorious wonder of what God has to avail for them. In verse 14, we have one of the key statements, it seems, one of the beautiful beatitudes of this book. Blessed are they that do His commandments. Other translations read that, Blessed are they that wash their robes. You'll notice, why is it they who are blessed? It's that they may have right to the tree of life. Do you and I wish to have access to this tree of life described in this chapter? It is not for everyone. It's for those who've washed their robes, for those who've done His commandments. No obedience, no washing of robes, no proper preparation as the bride of the Lamb, no access to this tree of life. What we lost in Christ, through Adam, again, we have opportunity to gain through Jesus. It is interesting that one of the final invitations in all the Bible is such a tender one. These comments we shall use to highlight that very feature and thought. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. God invites. He implores. He urges. He even insists. But He does allow us to make the final decision. If we wish to be rebellious, those who have a heart that is of an adamant stone described in the book of Ezekiel, He will allow us to be in that position and thus be eternally lost. He reminds those if they tamper with the book of Revelation, adding things to it, He notices that the plagues of the book will be added to them. To those who remove things from it, their name removed from the book of life. Time and again we're told we mustn't tamper with the Word of God. It is, in fact, what He wished it to be, and He gave it in that inspired form. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.21. Wasn't it Moses who told the children of Israel that ye shall not add to or diminish aught from the sayings that I have revealed, Deuteronomy 12.32. It is with those thoughts in mind. Verse 20 says, Surely I come quickly. His judgment did come quickly upon those of that day. Those who had persecuted the saints, Rome and all the others, we do notice that His judgment began very swiftly. We also notice the pattern and the principle that's behind this, reminding us that one day is with the Lord's a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, 2 Peter 3.8. None of us know when the Lord's going to come back. It may be in the next hour. It may be yet a hundred thousand years or more from now by our reckoning. No matter what, though, our life, even if that be the case, will long since have passed. Even at its best, this life is but a vapor. It appeareth for a little while and vanisheth away, James 4.13. Tonight, if you need to respond to the gospel call of invitation, under the banner of wanting to go to heaven, wanting to be a part of that body, the church, who is blessed to enjoy this as its final destiny and reward, do you not want to go to that place? Surely all thinking people would say yes. All right-minded individuals would surely answer yes. And yet there are so many who despite that answer still live, reprobate before God, Titus 1.16. If tonight we could assist you in your initial obedience and response to the gospel call of invitation so that your name could be a part of that book of life, realize you must believe Jesus to be the Son of God. You must repent of the sins in your life. You must confess His glorious name as a Son of God. All of that highlighted in Romans 10, verses 9 through 15. And then to be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38.
if you've begun that walk with the Master and your name was in that book, but since that time it has been erased because of unfaithfulness, because of public disgrace and shame you brought upon yourself and the cause for which you once had claimed such great loyalty, come back to that first love tonight. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The 16th verse of James chapter 5. Tonight, if we could pray on your behalf, petitioning God to forgive you based upon your repentance and confession, we'd be more than delighted to do that. A hymn of encouragement has been selected, and if at this time we could be of assistance to you in a public way, we would urge you, as does the Lord, to let, that, to let us know in what way we can help, and to do that while together we stand and while we sing.